Please be seated. Questions spark conversation and stimulate learning. When we ask, we learn. Jesus asked many questions during his ministry, but most of Jesus' questions were not asked to learn something he didn't already know. His questions were usually asked to teach us something we need to know. What can we learn from the questions Jesus asked? What an interesting series. And today the question is, what good is it? And we're going to be studying from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. So you might want to turn there in your Bible and be ready for our study in just a second. But first of all, I have to say something like Randy did about last Sunday. Wow. Wow. What a... What a powerful day. You know, actual, our actual anniversary of the second Sunday in November when the church met would have fallen yesterday. So in last week, we, we celebrated. Aren't you glad weather-wise we did it last Sunday, not today? Wow. We, God blessed us in that. But last week was just a blessing, a powerful blessing. I tell you, it makes me look forward to heaven. I, uh, the singing last week with all of us in one I was sitting over here on the front row. Nobody was in front of me. I, I almost threw out my voice singing, and I couldn't even hear myself. It was just a joy. You're glad you couldn't hear me either. But it was wonderful to sing full voice together with God's people. And I tell you what it makes me desire and look forward to is when we get to do all this in heaven. And not just us, but with all those who've gone before us and all those who are going to follow after. And we sing full voice to God and, and uh, on a daily, continual eternal basis what a what a fun time spending eternity praising the God we all love forever you know another powerful point in the service to me was uh, when Randy talked about how it's our time though you know we we celebrated the centennial but it was it's our time to shine brightly in this day in the world not so we'll be remembered at our bicentennial, which I'm thankful I'm not going to be at because let me tell you, last week was wonderful, but it wore us all out. But it was worth every moment of it. But So it's not that, that what we do today or this week or next month or this year or the next decades remembered at our bicentennial. That's not what it's about. It's about us being God's light in this world in our time so that shining, that reflecting of Jesus is remembered in eternity with people we'll be singing praise with forever and ever. That is what it's all about. This is our time. And it means it's our time to help in physical ways with people's immediate physical needs and to, to help in physical ways with structures. But that's not what it's all about. It is... It, it is about shining our light brightly in such a way that it impacts eternity, that we impact our community by reflecting and shining God's love in this community and in this world. And aren't you thankful it's not just about buildings? I mean, I, I drive by uh, 4th and Boulevard, one of the first permanent locations this, this church had. You, know, you can see one of that first building is still kind of a piece of that bigger building. And it looks to me like the building is empty now. It looks vacated to me. It's kind of run down. Does that mean that all the effort the Ashby's did in building that building physically and all the church, all the hours they put into it and how the Ashby's helped finance that personally with their own credit, does that mean it was all worthless because it's now a vacate, vacated building and vacant? No, absolutely not because they weren't trying to build a building that would last forever. They were trying to shine a light that would shine into eternity. And aren't you thankful that buildings 
don't last forever. That's not what it's about. That building then, and this building we're in right now, is just a platform. A platform on which God's light of love and care can shine through us into this world. Buildings weren't meant to last forever, or last a lifetime even. Our bodies were designed to last a lifetime, <laughs> but then that's over. But in heaven, we'll have a new Jerusalem, a new building place to dwell, a new body to dwell within it that lasts for eternity. Aren't you thankful? Wow. So let's be God's light right now in the ways he calls us in our community. Shine a light that will reflect into eternity. And one of the good ways to decide what is important is to ask this question, what good is it? What good is it? And as you think about the question, I, I want to just pause for just a moment as we begin the study and think about who should ask the question. In verse 34, Jesus called the crowds to him along with the disciples and said, and so the question is going to come, and who's it going to come to? Yes, his disciples, those who are already following him, but also to the crowd that is gathered. And Mark is writing these words for the, uh, to the Romans who are undergoing persecution. So obviously, he wanted them to hear these words and to, to uh, take them to heart. But I want you to know we're part of that crowd as well. We're part of those who are trying to decide, are we going to follow Jesus into our future? So who was the audience? Well, obviously the crowd, the disciples, but it's also us. And Jesus is going to say to us, as well as them, there's a couple of attitudes we need to have as followers. And the first is, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself. And then a willingness to take up our cross. To deny oneself means that we're going to surrender being in charge of our immediate gratification. The things that we want in this moment, in order, we're going to give those up in order to discover what God would do through us and what God wants for us to pursue God's interest instead of our own self-interest. It's, it's, a, it's a willingness to leave behind our selfish desires to have an eternal security. We're not going to rely on this earth to provide everything we need. We're going to rely on God. And so in a very real way, it is a turn from self-centeredness to God-centeredness, to deny themselves. And then to take up their cross and follow me, Jesus said. You know, taking up a cross to those who heard this for the very first time saw that as a sign of, and an illustration of humility and submission. I mean, when they thought of the cross, especially those Christians in Mark, that, uh, in Rome that Mark is writing to, they knew people that had been crucified. Crucifixion was for, in the Roman Empire, was for the worst, worst um, uh, criminals, the disgusting criminals, or the people that Rome thought was, was someone that was among the worst. And so to be crucified was to, to be shamed in front of everybody. The Romans even caused the person to be crucified to carry their own cross. And they did that to show, to be seen as a sign of submittal. We're going to kill you, and you're going to carry the cross that's going to kill you to the place. You are fully submitted to us. 
We are in control. We have control over you. And so when they heard the words, take up the cross, they would probably have thought of Jesus, since Jesus had already died on the cross when Mark wrote this. But they saw so much more in this than we, we likely do. And Jesus is saying followers have to be prepared to obey God's word and follow his will no matter what the consequence. For some it might be death. But for all of us it's giving up our self-centeredness and following him. It means that right now we choose to focus our life on him and follow him and not our own pursuits we're not going to do with our time this week whatever we want to do with our time. We're not going to do with our money whatever we want to do with our money. It's a change of direction. And God, we follow Christ as we think about all those things. They take up their cross and follow me. And then he gives us a paradox in verse 35. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. There's several literary tools that I really enjoy. Uh, and, and definitely a paradox is one of them. My favorite is probably a sarcasm, which is terrible. I need to stop. But I do like a good paradox. And really, you know, an oxymoron is just kind of like a paradox in one word. You, you enjoy oxymorons? Just, just out loud. Tell me one of your favorite oxymorons out loud right now. Uh, sorry, what was it? Jumbo shrimp. Thank you very much. Anybody else? Clear as mud, thank you. I gave, here's a few, I did a little research, some that I hadn't thought about. Only choice, almost exactly, I might have said that. Pretty ugly, yeah, you've heard that one. The same difference, no, no, you can't have the same difference. So th these are great little oxymorons. I've discovered in, in looking online, there are one word oxymorons, how cool is that? Bittersweet. Spendthrift, obviously. I love the middle one, preposterous. Think about that one. I had fun thinking about that. Definitely an oxymoron in one word. But my all-time favorite oxymoron. Hit it. <laughs> All right. But what Jesus gives here is not an oxymoron. It is something very similar. An oxymoron is in one little, uh, two words or one word that, that have different thoughts. But he gives a paradox. Here's a good definition of a paradox. A statement that appears at first to be contradictory, but upon reflection then makes sense. Paradox allows readers to understand concepts in a different and even non-traditional ways. So you have this contrary thought that can be expressed in, in, a, in word, a few words or in a sentence. And there are opposing words or concepts that cause us to think deeper about it. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. But just for the fun of it, I gave you, a, here's a few examples of a paradox. Less is more. If you don't risk anything, you risk everything. You probably heard these. The more you give, the more you get. Living in the present for the future. The only constant is change. You probably heard that one as well. George Bernard Shaw is famous, uh, the, the, the playwright is famous for quoting, saying this, youth is wasted on the young. You might have heard that before, which is really a, a paradox because, I mean, you have to be youthful to be young, so how can it be wasted on them? 
But the idea is young people don't have the maturity or the perspective yet to take advantage of the energy that, they're, that they have in their youthful years. And so that's a, that's a paradox as well. Paradoxes can also be physically illustrated. In my office, I have a, a little book. It's called the uh, Impossible Coloring Book. I really enjoyed it. Here's an image of one of the, the Impossible Coloring Book pages. I love the little heading on it. It says, we, we dare you to color between the lines because it's impossible. I mean, these are, these are paradoxes. They're a visual image that you, you can't stay between the lines. And so we can visually see what a paradox looks like as well. This next image is, is another one. And the Christian life in a very real way is a paradox. You know, to, to lose, if you know, gain my life, I have to lose that. And so the world looks at Christians and they say, we, we don't get it. I mean, which path are you going to take? Because it doesn't appear to lead it to the same place. And so he says again in Mark 8, 35, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The word life there in Greek is referring to the soul. I mean, it's the core of who we are. It's, it's, a pers- it's our personality. It's our dreams. It's our hopes. It's our goals. And a person who hopes, who saves his own life, his or her own life, to satisfy their earthly desires, and we do it apart from God, eventually loses that life. And I would argue they lose it in a couple of ways. First of all, they lose eternal life because they don't accept that Jesus is the pathway and allow him to cleanse us of our sins. But it also suggests that they lose that life right now. They, they lose the fullness that's promised to those of us who believe in the here and the now. But if we are willing to lose our lives for Christ and the gospel then we can actually save them so what does it mean to lose one's life for Christ's sake well obviously it means refusing to renounce Christ even like Mark is going to say if the punishment is death It's, it's a willingness to put our personal desires behind us Give those desires to God and then choose God's way to place our life in God's hands and let him lead us and guide us. Choose to follow him instead of the life that we see in this world that leads to sin and just self-satisfying self. It's a new way of living. We stop trying to control our own lives and turn our destiny over to him and allow him to direct us. And that's what he asks for, submission. He doesn't mean that you hate yourself. You don't care about yourself. It means that you submit to him. And instead of being self-centered and having that determination to make it work no matter what, we give our lives to Christ and allow him to be in charge. And this really makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you believe God created this earth, why not give yourself to the one who created you and knows what you need more than anyone else so discipleship implies real commitment 
It means that we give our all to Him. And that's when we discover real purpose. And then we find the question, verse 36 and 37. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? A rhetorical question. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world? I mean, that means to have the power. Literally, what he's saying here is you would have the power over everything in this world, all the financial systems, over everything, and the entire world and its finances are in your hands. You would have everything in this world of which Satan controls in, in your hands. This is exactly what Jesus faced what Satan brought to him. You remember Matthew 4, 8 through 10? The devil, devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's what he's talking about. Every person is going to die. The most wealthy and most influential, influential Everybody dies. And that most powerful person, if they've not taken care of their soul for eternity, no matter what they've gained, is lost. No matter what. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? In 2006, some of us likely remember a movie that came out. It was called The End of the Spear. It was a movie that depicted uh, some missionaries who went to Ecuador and lost their lives while they were trying to um, share the gospel among some natives there. It's a story of Jim Elliott and other missionaries, and, and a lot's been said and shown and written about that. It's very powerful. Jim Elliott kept a journal, a daily journal, and uh, was quite famous for it. And out of that journal, there has been one quote that's been attributed to him that is so, so powerful that speaks to this moment. Here's a picture of the journal and the quote. He, he wrote in his journal on uh, October 28, 1949, over 70 years ago, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do you it right? He's expressing the truth that we're talking about right now. What a powerful statement and a powerful way to live life. Many people seek with all their energy self-pleasure instead of following Jesus. So back to our verse in Mark 8, 36 and 37. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their souls? You can live in this world and you can have it centered around your pleasure, the things that you can gain, what other people think about you. And ultimately, it's going to be worthless because everything is here is temporary. It will last a lifetime, maybe, but that's it. Work hard for it. You might find pleasure for a while, but in the end, you just find out it's hollow and empty. The answer to the question, nothing is of enough value that it should be exchanged for one's life, one's soul. Nothing. Nothing. Because if we'll follow Christ, 
we can have abundant life both now and eternal life as well. There's no quote I heard decades ago from a preacher, and I probably will say this a little bit wrong, but the concept has always stuck with me. He said something like this, I'm not a Christian just because I might die tonight. I'm a Christian because I might live tomorrow. I mean, I care about eternity, and, and, and we live for eternal, eternity. But this eternal life begins now. And who wants to face their tomorrows without Christ with them? You know, when I think of influential people in this world that I would consider had it all, I mean, they were people of power and success. I mean, they had it all. One of the people that comes to my mind is Steve Jobs. Here's a picture of him in 2007 introducing the first iPhone. One of the interesting things about, about him, the founder of Apple, so successful, billions of phones. So, I mean, it's just incredible all the things he's done. And I would have said he was on top. Many of you remember the story of his ending. He, he uh, had pancreatic cancer and eventually would die at the age of 56, eight years after he was di diagnosed with the cancer. When he found out about the, the cancer, he approached it like he approached everything in the, else in this world, his way. He didn't go the traditional methods. He had all these other ideas of things. They say he actually probably shortened his life because of the path that he chose to take. But whatever that was, he did it his way. He walked that path. He tackled it the way he tackled everything else in life, the Steve Jobs way. But eventually he would lose his life to complications because of the cancer. His biographer was Walter Isaacson, and, and Walter met with him several times. At, at one of the last interviews that he had with him, he talked to him about death. And Steve Jobs said, sometimes I'm 50-50 on whether there's a God. It's a great mystery we never quite know, but I like to believe there's an afterlife. I like to believe that the accumulated wisdom doesn't just disappear when you die, but somehow it endures. I mean, even Steve Jobs, with all the success here, wanted something to stay around. He just wasn't for sure how it worked. But then he, as the biographer says, then the Apple CEO paused and smiled and said this, but maybe it's just like an on-off switch and click, and you're gone. Maybe that's why I don't like putting on-off switches on Apple devices. The most successful, powerful, influential people eventually die. Just like me and just like you. What matters then is how we live now. We can put ourselves at the center of the universe and do everything we can to promote ourselves. That's called sin, though. It's self-seeking. Or we can choose not to put ourselves in that place, but put God there and live a God-centered life, self-denying, Christ-following. And then, there's something after worth living for, eternity. Jesus put it this way, Mark 8, 38, as he talked about that after the on-off switch. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is constantly turning upside down the perspectives of this world. First shall be last, saving and losing. And he comes to this final day, and he says, if you choose not to follow me, if you're ashamed of me, you don't stand up for me in these days, then on that day, this is what will happen. For those of you who are Bible students, study that word ashamed a little bit more, especially if you're walking through the Old Testament. It has a judgment theme in it, how God judge, judges through that word shame or ashamed. And Jesus is saying, I'm that one who can judge. And on the last day, it's not like this on Judgment Day. Jesus doesn't get up there and say, oh, you were embarrassed of me? God, I'm embarrassed of this one. He's embarrassing. Get rid of him. That's not, that's not it. It is a position of judgment. God, this one did not follow. I saw it. It is a statement of judgment. It means that he will reject us. I've seen people in this world who are fearless in business, fearless in sports, fearless in a battle. But one of the things they can't take is ridicule. When we follow Jesus, there'll be times of ridicule. But don't be ashamed. Stand up for Jesus. People don't always get it or see it. And then on that day, the one we stood for will stand for us. Rejecting Christ might help us escape some shame right now, for the time being. But it will guarantee a life of shame later on. And so the question we ask today is a good one for us. It's a paradox. What good is it? You ever heard the phrase, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? If I was a cartoonist, I'd try and draw that. You ever see a cartoon of that? Let me know. I'd like to have a picture of it. Pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Or you can place yourself in the waters of baptism, dying to sin, and allow the power of God to bring you out of those waters, to raise you up a new person, sinless, a follower of Christ. That's the call. The call is to live the paradox so many can't grasp. So as we sing the invitation song, maybe it's a call to come. If you've never given your life to Christ, haven't had your sins washed away, you've been studying and you believe, you know what to do, now's the time. Won't you come? Or for many of us, maybe it's a time to return. Just a moment as we sing this song, some of our shepherds and their wives are going to be in the parlor. They would love to pray with you and for you if you'd like to go there. We'd also love to pray for you here in the auditorium. So if you want to come down front, that would be wonderful as well. It's the call. How will you answer? Let's stand together and sing.